You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, on this week's show, there seems to be two very large stories to talk about this week, two very major stories. One is Donald Trump's trip to Singapore to talk to uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. There's an intense debate going on about how significant that meeting is in practice. Of course, uh, you know, it does look very significant in terms of the optics. What has been achieved and what will it mean for politics in the US? We're going to be talking about that on this week's show. And then later on, we're going to be talking about Brexit. What else? Um, there's been a series of votes in Parliament this week. Uh, and on a whole range of issues, including the customs union, the EEA and uh, meaningful votes and all that sort of stuff. And we're going to be looking at what the implications of those, those votes will be for the government, its Brexit negotiating strategy and what might happen with public opinion, too, because ultimately that's what matters, uh, both in terms of polls, of course, but yes, in terms of votes, too. And I'm joined to go through all of the numbers today by my fellow podcaster in chief, Leo Barassi, who I hope won't flounce out on me like the SNP did today. Uh, Leo, welcome back to Polling Matters. Hello, Kieran. I'll try not to. Try not to. Um, interesting events in Parliament. I do think political journalists uh, enjoy the, enjoy the theatre, don't they? Yeah. Uh, it's, um, but we'll see. It looked a little bit contrived, but I don't want to get the cyber nats on me. <laughs> a little bit contrived? Well, I, I, <laughs> you've got to be careful with these cyber nats. I, I want to try and pick and choose who I'm battling with on Twitter on a given week. Um, so where do we start, Leo? I mean, we had... Um, Donald Trump, uh, never far away from the news, but this felt like quite a big week, didn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously it's it's huge, it's dramatic. Now, I mean, I, I feel a bit uh, reluctant to to take some of the terms that uh, some of the coverage painted it in as sort of the most significant and most awaited summit in modern history or or in world history. I mean, I think a little of it felt some of it felt a little bit overblown, but you know, fundamentally. Um, a summit of the US president and the North Korean leader, as we had in, in Singapore this week, is a big deal. Uh, the photos of them shaking hands and publishing this joint communique, I mean, it's, it's significant. And, um, you know, clearly now there's a debate about uh, sort of the, the substance of it. And, you know, there are critics who are saying that um, there's nothing new in it and that, that Trump has basically got played by someone who uh, understands how to work with his ego and how to uh, uh, get get him to uh, to give them credibility without uh, Trump getting anything in return. But, you know, obviously Trump feels differently and just sort of the fact of having uh, having done this and, and be, been there and got the summit and be able to paint it as a, a success feels significant, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I think, um, how can I put this? One of, the, one of the problems with Trump is that, look, that there are lots of, lots of people don't like him, right, in Britain and, and in America too. And I think that there's a lot of people that find it very hard to know how to cover him and what he does and do so in a, I don't want to say objective way, because that sort of implies a sort of fake news bias against him, which he always rails on about, which I don't, I don't think is fair. I think it's a bit unpleasant when he does that. But there is a, a kernel of truth in the fact that people just don't know how to cover what he does objectively and, and, and they don't know how to cover what he does in a way that um, gives him due credit where it's where it's deserved. My view is if, if President Obama has this summit, then he get he, 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 you know he's getting a Nobel Peace Prize over this, right? Whereas you know the US president with the North Korean leader is a big deal. I think the fact that this 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 summit happened at all, is a very big deal and it makes Trump look 
like a normal president and not just a normal president actually one that's um one that's doing something rather significant and i think just to pick up on one of the points you mentioned yes i mean people will say that other presidents could have had this meeting but they didn't because they didn't think they were going to achieve anything but as i say i think the fact this meeting happens at all and there's more of a sense of goodwill is a world away from where we were six months ago when a lot of experts, uh, without being a bit of a Michael Gove about this, whereas a lot of experts were saying, oh, we're heading for nuclear war, oh God, what's going to happen, that sort of thing. And the communique itself talks about complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, lots of ambiguity, and I'll defer to academic experts on this as to whether that's sufficient to, to, to show that the North Koreans are serious. Um, but I think actually beyond the communique, there was some significant stuff, right? They were talking about ending war games of South Korea. Um, Trump was talking about a sort of positive relationship with Kim. And I see this as a, as with any diplomacy, it's a process, not an event. And I would fully expect this to be followed up with uh, significant stuff. Like Mike Pompeo has come out tonight and talked about um, expecting some form of denuclearization by 2020. So things will move on. And I assume that this will be one meeting of many. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if this is it, yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a damp squib, but I don't think it is it. I think this is going to be something that Trump's calculated he can do and will help him. And uh, I, think that, I think that it's a positive move for him for that reason. So I guess I, can, I, I want to think about it on two different levels. And I think the way you responded then included both those levels. And just in my mind, I'd want to separate them out more clearly. I think on the one hand, there's the substantive stuff and sort of what what this actually means. And your point about if Obama had done this, we'd be talking about a Nobel Peace Prize. I think that that's fair. But the point is Obama wouldn't have done this so spontaneously because he and his team would have put vastly more groundwork into working out what they were going to get from it and making sure that, you know, as they did with Cuba, they weren't going to sit down until there were already a lot of concessions. Um, And the risk with this is that the US has fundamentally given North Korea a massive concession by sitting down with them and giving them this credibility. Um, and the second concession of saying that they're going to to end war games. At the moment, as far as I am aware, they haven't got anything in return. And if that carries on like that and and, and indeed goes further, then they have lost, they've spent a lot of credibility and not got anything back. So I do feel like I wouldn't, on the substantive level, I wouldn't sort of rush rush to uh, say that he's achieved something that everyone else has fa- failed to do in terms of past presidents. I mean, they could have done this. They knew they could have done this, but they chose not to. Um, but then there's the second point, and that's, and I think perhaps most relevant for this conversation, is kind of the optics of it, that, you know, fundamentally what he's just done makes him look presidential. And that's obviously a really important thing for him and that it both addresses his major weakness um that for trump in the public eye there's this huge challenge that often he doesn't look and act like a president and doing this kind of thing that is what people think presidents do whether or not the summit leads to long-term successes he has just acted extremely presidentially in most people's eyes and that's i think potentially going to be really significant for public opinion of him. Um, 
and then as well, just by by doing it in this unconventional deal making way, he's also playing into what was supposed to be his his USP as the the guy who would cut deals and deal sort maker. of do, yeah do politics in a different way. So just in the sort of the the, the more superficial way, so as opposed to sort of um, the the deeper what comes out of this in terms of international relations, just in terms of his image, it feels like a, like a real win. But I don't know. I mean, what what do you reckon in terms of the polling? Well, I'll come to the the polling in a minute, but just a brief aside on on the um, on, on the substance. You know, I, I could hear people saying this. We're not Korean experts. You know, fully hold our hands up on that, right? But then there were, without being flippant, a lot of people that seemed to think this was going that didn't seem to see this coming, right? So that's the only thing. I'll, I'll, that's the only thing I'll say on that. Um, my hunch is that Kim, and it's just a hunch. I think Kim wants to do a deal. He wants to come in from the cold. I'm loath to make the Gorbachev comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. It feels like, for whatever reason, maybe the history books will show Chinese money is involved. Um, you know, he, he's concluded that he needs economic growth in the north. He thinks he can get a deal out of America to do with um, security in that region that dials down the military threat against him. I'm speculating, I accept I'm speculating, but my, my feeling is they want that there is goodwill there and they want to do a deal. So I think that, yeah, we will see whether I'm right or not. On the public opinion, um, I mean, I think that there's two things, there's two points I've made. One is about Trump's uh, approval rating and popularity, but we can come back to that. But on this, um, I was looking at a Quinnipiac poll um, about Trump and just the, you know, what people think of the job he's doing. And it struck me that one of his only area, pretty much his only area, actually, of uh, sort of positivity is this North Korean policy. Um, 52% approve of his policy towards North Korea, 35% disapprove. Um, and within that, actually, there's, um, you know, quite overwhelming support for this meeting in, uh, happening at all. 72% approve of the meeting happening, 21% disapprove. Um, but there are some warning signs for President Trump. Uh, in terms of whether he can deliver anything tangible. So 46% thought he would be prepared. This was before, I should say, this poll was taken before the meeting. 46% thought he would go in prepared. 48% said he wouldn't. Um, do you have confidence in President Trump to handle the situation or not? 49% have confidence. 47% do not. But before I come back to you to comment on some of these numbers, Leo, I mean, if you compare it to some other um, sort of issue-based polling, we'll come to his personality later, um, 52% disapprove of his foreign policy overall, 40% approve. 58% disapprove of his immigration policy. Important to remember when we're talking about walls and building walls and things, right? 38% approve. So actually there's not... His supporters might like him, his immigration policy. The majority of Americans don't. 51% disapprove of his trade policy, 40% approve. 61% disapprove of his race relations policy, 33% approve. So I mean, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but I think for the benefit of listeners, um, and there is one I've missed off, which people do approve of, which we might come to, I'm sure. Maybe you'll, you'll bring it up. Um, but there, there are a host of policy issues where people disapprove of the job Trump is doing on the detail. North Korea is not one of them. It is the opposite. And again, I think that that's another reason why this week was a win for Trump. I think he looks... I, I share some of your views about his um, looking like a president, but also I think it's a policy area where people are on the side of the president as well. Yes. Um, he, I think, is close to undeniably in an extremely poor polling position. He obviously has this uh, historically bad favorability, which uh, yeah, I've got, got to admit to my surprise, perhaps didn't continue getting worse after, uh, after it really dropped in his first six months or so in office, but leveled out and actually somewhat improved 
um, and all these other numbers are very bad, um, with the exception of, as, as you hinted, with the exception of his handling of the economy, which is currently round about neck and neck. You know, the numbers fluctuate a bit, but broadly, people don't think that the economy is bad. Now, um, other people have done far more modelling of um, the uh, of sort of what that means. So, you know, I d don't want to uh, get into it, but um, that is clearly a hugely significant factor for someone who is going to be facing re-election in not all that long. Mm. Um, the people think the single biggest driver of votes uh, he's kind of doing okay on. So I sort of feel all the other stuff, the handling of, of immigration stuff and, and other issues is obviously important. But um, I don't know. I think that's that's perhaps the one of the first, first times looking at those numbers, I thought, well, actually, you know, perhaps um, if he can carve out a deal maker on the international stage and good at the economy, well... It's not the worst platform for going into a re-election. No, I mean it is. It is a story to tell. If you if you if you were advising him from a political strategist point of view, it's very clear from these numbers what you would ask him to dial up and what you'd ask him to dial down, isn't it? I mean, I will say again, I think those immigration numbers are worth keeping in mind, right? When people talk about well, his supporters like him building the wall and that sort of thing, and his policy on um, the children of uh, the dreamers and that sort of thing seems like actually that's pretty much a net negative for him rather than anything else. Um, just to add some more numbers, you, you alluded to uh, sort of his approval rating there. I just wanted to give listeners a, a taste of that. So on the 538 website, they track um, not only the approval rating uh, of President Trump, but they also track it in comparison of other presidents at the same time in their term. So I think this is after something like 510 days or something like that. Um, and President Trump's approval rating is 42%. By historic standards, the only president in the post-war era to have a lower approval rating at this time is uh, Gerald Ford, who had 39%, um, which obviously Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, was a bit of a dead man walking uh, from after doing that. Um, but then you look at some of the others. I mean, you've got George H. Bush, 68% approval, goes on to not win re-election, right? You've got others... Uh, um, that you know have had not particularly good uh, approval ratings that, that did go on to win re-election, um, but you know uh, um, Trump's approval rating there is sort of alongside Ford. I mentioned thirty-nine percent, Carter forty-four percent, so they both lost. But Reagan forty-five percent went on to win, not just not just a little bit. Remember, Ronald Reagan won. I think it was like forty-nine out of fifty states. The only one he didn't win was the the home state of his opponent. So. I, 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 I want to be cautious about over-interpreting those numbers, but at the same time, um, people should bear in mind that this narrative that he's recovering in the polls can be overblown, right? Because ultimately, um, he, he is in a, in a historically bad area. Um, now, you mentioned the second point you mentioned was this idea of the um, his re-election. Of course, there's the midterms before that. And one of the other things that is tracked uh, on the 538 website is this uh, idea of the generic ballot. So do you want the Democrats or the Republicans to... Who, who would you vote for between the Democrats or the Republicans um, in November? So this is relevant to the, the House of Representatives and um, the Democrats are about eight points ahead uh, in the generic ballot. Um, that would take that would take the House back if they did that. Um, there's some debate about how far ahead they need to be because it's a first-past-the-post system and we all know the limitations there. Um, but, you know... 
even though the gap's narrowed a bit, they still look on course to to win the house, and that creates a whole whole other issue. How how the rest of his first term plays out, the Senate's slightly different because only certain states are up. They're not friendly to um, they're not friendly to Democrats. But we won't go into that here and now. So yeah, I mean, I think that yeah. I mean, in conclusion, I think you know he, he's looking in a historically not particularly good situation, but this career stuff plays well for him, and that and the economy are a platform for re-election. Um, there's a lot of other negatives for him though, isn't there? Yeah, um, I mean, putting it all together, I was looking at the um, the bookmakers odds for the next election, and uh, um, it's perhaps they consider it perhaps somewhat closer than I'd expected. Um, so the best way to look at it is um, odds for whether it will be a Republican or a Democrat, because that um, addresses the problem that we don't know, obviously, who um, the candidates, particularly the Democrat candidates, will be. Democrats are slight favourites, but it's five to six versus five to four. Uh, so five six for the Democrats, five four uh, for the Republicans, who we assume will be Trump. Now, I kind of look at that and think that feels like to me quite good odds. Um, uh, I would consider putting money on the Democrats on that, but uh, obviously the bookmakers think that um, it's not far off being evens. And I will, before we move on, the one thing I would say for given that we are on politicalvetting.com, uh, I think that one of the things here is that there is money to be made on the Democrat nominee. Um, partly because the bookies have no, haven't the foggiest idea who it's going to be. Um, so Do you, did you, didn't you get um, a hundred to one on John Hick and Looper? I got something that like right? that. I think I got. Let me see. It was something like a hundred to one. I mean, I, I, I'm not convinced that. Got to say, his name's faded from the it spotlight. It has faded. I, I must so, admit, I, I, I got, I got about ten or tw- what was it? I think it might have even been twenty quid. I don't think it was as much as a hundred to one. I think it might have been sixties or seventies. But uh, yeah, not as confident on that at the moment uh, as I am on my Sajid Javid bet, which I'm plugging mercilessly, <laughs> twenty quid on fifty to one. Um, but no, the point is that because because there's no obvious front runner, there's money to be made. So if that, so those of you that are listening and think, oh, do you know what? I think it might be Joe Biden. I think it might be Kirsten Gillibrand. I think it might be Kamala Harris. Whoever you think it might be, uh, it's worth a punt because uh, there's good returns there. Um, I'm still holding out hope for my uh, my five Ron Ed Balls to be next Labour leader at 100 to one. I was going to say uh, President of the United States, but that would be well, uh, uh, more of a stretch. That was thousand to one. That's David Miliband, isn't it? I think. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Might need a constitutional amendment first. Yeah, we're we're awaiting. It's about as likely as him coming back and being a Labour MP, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> meow. Um, let's move on to Brexit, shall we? So, I mean, I think it's uh, something that's never far away um, from our minds. So, I should say, for listeners' benefit, we're recording this on uh, Wednesday evening. So, this is a kind of ongoing situation. But I think the best way to characterise where we are this week is there's been a series of votes in Parliament on issues like the um, single market, the customs union, this idea of a meaningful vote. Uh, and there was a lot of concern about whether the government would lose some of these votes. The government have basically won them all, again, at the time of recording. Um, so in theory, the Prime Minister rests a bit easier at the moment, at least in terms of how constrained she is in her negotiations. But, and there is quite a big but, there is a huge uh, debate and lots of ca- claims and counterclaims as to what the Prime Minister's had to promise uh, to get this vote through and to sort of stave off rebellions. And this all, again, stems uh, comes back to whether or not Parliament takes over, uh, essentially, if she doesn't get a deal that satisfies Parliament uh, in sort of November. Uh, there's some talk of a deadline, November the 30th. I'm not quite sure if that deadline's written in stone. Um, so potentially a really real big problem for the Prime Minister if she is has given the impression that she has promised two diametrically opposed things to two groups, that's going to be a problem. Um, but at the same time, she hasn't lost a vote in Parliament yet, and she continues this, what I call, 
plate spinning of like you think it's all going to come crashing down and it hasn't quite yet um what's going to happen we're not sure on the labor side um 99 labor mps um defied jeremy corbyn today uh, on the eea membership 74 voted to stay in the single market 15 voted to leave um he wanted people to abstain um so yeah labor divided as well but really not the main story here i think so i mean yeah i mean leah where, where do you think this leaves us with brexit i'm just trying to just think about your plate spinning analogy because in a way the sort of the usual um uh um i was going to say cheap but that's that's unfair the the usual um uh, metaphor that people reach for when they're talking about the EU is kicking the can down the road but I think actually the plate spinning does work quite well because the point is if it's sort of like if one falls the whole thing collapses but the thing I guess that that I've also got in my mind is that at some point the fat lady comes on and sings and the plate sing, sing, spinning is declared a success and she's kind of got where she needs to be arguably mm. and I guess I sort of feel like what the votes have done this time round is just inched her a bit closer to the moment where a Brexit deal has gone through Parliament or has come to Parliament. And I mean, it feels fairly clear now that it's going to come to Parliament in a way where Parliament can't really reject it, basically, what whatever's there. Or it can, but it would have to be so bad that the parliamentary arithmetic that is actually fairly helpful for the government is unlikely to result in it being voted down um now obviously there's all the stuff that happens after the vote goes through but i don't know i sort of feel like you know this this if anything i mean it's you know it i wouldn't call it a watershed moment and you know it's not like everything has changed but it does feel like perhaps just a moment where it's become unavoidable at least to me that this is this is going to happen it's going to get passed and it feels like she's going to succeed in in getting brexit through mm. which would to be to be fair be a real achievement when you i mean granted she shot her she shot herself in the foot with the general election that lost her her, her majority but um to pull it off when you've got people with diametrically opposed views on this um would would be a, would be a credit to her although i think she got lucky with her leader of the opposition and that's not necessarily a not it's not meant to be a, a dig at jeremy corbyn but just i think the fact that he seems to be quite comfortable with the idea of brexit happening and a brexit where we leave the single market as well um i, I think it's helped her out in a way that i don't know maybe another labor leader who wanted to be in the single market could have caused real problems with the tory rebels and such um the only caveat i would say to what you i mean i, I share a lot of those views that you that you've um put forward there the only caveat i would give is it's still not clear to me how northern ireland is dealt with on this issue of a border um the republic of ireland has made very clear it doesn't want a border there and the republic of ireland has the ability to scupper any brexit deal and i know people will argue about well it's not in their interest to do so economically etc 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 but they've made very clearly they're very clear that they're not going to do that. So I'm still not clear how Theresa May sort of squares that circle of um, her Brexiters, the Republic of Ireland, and then of course the fact that the DUP is, um, you know, is, is is what's keeping her in power in Westminster. So that would be the one caveat I would say. Although I do wonder, um, and I was thinking about this comparison with the Trump summit earlier. It's not quite the same, but um, they they did essentially commit to talking more, um, and I wonder whether that's the fudge. And when it comes to Parliament in November or October, November, 
Northern Ireland won't be solved. They'll just say, we're going to carry on talking about it. And that again kicks the can down the road. But that's probably why this backstop stuff was so important, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it, it's about parceling it up, right? It's about getting um, getting the sort of the bulk of it voted through, and by acknowledging that there's other stuff that you're not voting on just yet, right? Mm, yeah, and uh, I mean, if she manages to do that, then yeah, I mean, I think I agree. Um, what will be interesting is whether, and I mean, we can't really know this, but whether the Labour leadership thinks that there's a way of defeating the government um over this stuff when it comes in november which would lead to a general election and and whether their sole purpose in life here is to bring down the tories and to get into government themselves and they see it and they see i don't know some kind of vote of no confidence as a way of doing that um but again i mean theresa may still does have that majority for now with the dup right um well right yeah i mean but that's exactly the case isn't it i mean that is precisely labor's strategy that um the 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 brexit stuff stuff it's all seen through the prism of how can they cause the most pain for the government um but i still but that's that's kind of partly the explanation for what i said a minute ago that given that it is obvious that a defeat for the government on something fundamental of brexit with brexit would lead to a general election just obviously raises the stakes and, mm. and means that there are there are Tories who would have seriously considered rebelling who recognize that doing so would hugely increase the chances of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister but presumably he's not going to abstain on the final brexit withdrawal bill right so so he has to well, make <laughs> well La- labor leaders have uh, seen the seen the cost of abstaining on uh, on crucial uh, uh, commons bills. But, but, but my point uh, is that presumably he has to vote for it or against it, and I presume he's going to find a way to want to vote against it. So, and the, the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party, I imagine, for the most part, would want to do that, probably for different reasons within it. Like some of them will do it because they want to scupper the whole thing. Some will do it just to bring down the government. Um, but I guess some will vote for it, won't they? And that's the thing. There'll be the Kate Hoey's, Caroline Flints, and so on that that vote that vote for it. I mean, I think you're. Probably- well, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. That's uh, um, well, that's that's obviously important potentially even for the Northern Ireland stuff. I mean, who knows? Could they could they get enough that the DUP uh, could be voting against it? It seems unlikely, and whether the government could carry on after that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess will Corbyn necessarily be voting against it? I'm not sure. Mm, I guess time will tell. Um, where, where do we see public opinion going on this, Leo? I mean, there's been a treasure trove of uh, polling from Opinion. Over yeah, the really, really nice, interesting uh, poll from Opinion, um, which had a bunch of, uh, of questions. And I think, you know, it's not the... Um, that many of them were telling us sort of completely new things, but, um, you know, some some important pointers about public opinion that I think are easily lost and forgotten. So um, I'm sort of completely on the topic that that we've just been talking about. Um, So they had a question on whether there should be a second referendum. Um, And as we've seen and talked about before, when you ask people straight up, should there be a second referendum on the Brexit deal? People tend to not like it. That phrasing of a second referendum does badly. That was indeed the case in this one, that it was um, had a net minus 10 points 
um, so opposition to it. Um, and we we know from previous polls that um, if you want to find support for another vote, then you need to frame it as, as something like, should the public have a final say on the, the Brexit deal before it's passed? But what Opinium also asked is, should MPs vote on the uh, on the uh, Brexit deal? And this time they... Um, it was clear that people do think that MPs should have a vote. Not a huge gap, 43-37, um, certainly backs it up. Now, politically, we're obviously in a position where um, MPs are presumably going to have some kind of a vote. It just, you know, whether that's effectively a meaningless vote, I guess, is, isn't, uh, well, I guess is hmm. politically, but isn't captured by the poll. Um, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of other stuff, I think, the question that really stood out to me, well, a couple of questions. Um, first, um, there's a straight up one, which I've got to admit, this was new to me. And I think others might have seen something like this before, but it really struck me as um, unexpected. And, you know, who knows, is it, is it still significant? But there's a question on, um, should we, uh, would you be prepared for uh, the UK to, uh, let me get the wording exactly right, what should be the priorities um, uh, for um, uh, the government? Which of the following should be the government's negotiating priority? Staying in the single market, even if it means allowing free movement of labour, or ending free movement of labour, even if it means we leave the single market. So, uh, very clear, simple question essentially pitting free movement against the single market. Now, honestly, I was surprised by this. Um, staying in the single market, even if it means allowing free movement, one, it got 38%, ending free movement, even if it means we leave the single market, was 34 So not a huge gap. Um, and you know, basically pretty much within the margin of error and 28% um, weren't sure. But I think given that free movement is, I think, a term that people widely understand and is quite clear um whereas the idea of the single market is something that i think isn't so clear i was genuinely surprised to see that it was even close to be honest i would have thought that ending free movement would have done much better um, it does it does um bring up the issue that i think stephen bush was writing about i think it was stephen bush about how those people that want to stay in the single market need to start making the argument for free movement um, the numbers you've mentioned there suggest that there is a receptive audience to that and maybe um, even, even even space to grow. But then I'm also thinking of work that I think it's Rob Ford, who's been on the podcast before, has mentioned that immigration seems to have dropped as an issue uh, of importance or salience since the referendum, potentially because people think it's almost dealt with now, even if the system itself hasn't changed because we've had that vote. Well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously true that it, that it has dropped. And, um, you know, just, just on a simple measure, um, the YouGov um, most important issue, uh, immigration has dropped from uh, June 2016 being 56%. Um, in fairness, that was a bit of a peak um, in the following months. It was in the, the high 40s. But anyway, mm. um, late 2016, it was between 40 and 56, now down to 29% of people putting it in the top three issues. So it clearly has fallen. Now, I get your point and, and Rob Ford's point um, that it uh, this might be because people think it's been addressed. But coming back to this question, the wording is, even if it means allowing free movement versus ending free movement, well, that's the mechanism that, that would address it following the, the EU referendum. So yeah. I certainly 
don't think you can use the fact that people think it's addressed to explain the result in this question. Hmm. Um, just a minor point, that the number's 31, the 29 was from May, 31's from June. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same principle. Um, there was a couple of numbers that ju jumped out at me, one, some from the opinion survey and some from YouGov. Um, so in the opinion survey, there, uh, there was a, one number that jumped out at me, which is that 63% think that Brexit will make no difference to their finan personal financial situation. So there's a slight plurality. I don't have the numbers in front of me that say they think the economy will get worse generally. But then when you ask people about their own personal situation, people sort of don't seem to see a link between Brexit and their own personal finances getting worse. I think that's really Im that's really important for people to, to bear in mind. And then the other thing from YouGov uh, is this kind of this, this tracker about were we right to leave, wrong to leave. 44% apiece, 44% right, 44% wrong. You often see people, you know, share when that number changes, but it seems to keep going back to the mean eventually. Um, more than half of Brexiters, leave voters, I should say, think that Brexit's going badly, 54%, um, but they still overwhelmingly think it was something like 87%, think it was right, they were right, we were right to leave. Yeah, 87%. So, I don't know. Like, there's there's a good chunk of Leave voters that will acknowledge it's going badly, but still want it to happen. And I guess they must see it as a process thing. And maybe once it's done, it'll be all right. But um, that for me is, is is Brexit in a nutshell. We can all go home now, can't we? But um, you know that that's kind of feels like what it is. I, I don't see if that's the case. You've got a chunk of Leave voters that think it's going badly, but want to do it anyway. I don't see many Leave voters thinking it's the wrong wrong idea or turning against it. Do you? Yeah, just first briefly on your remain uh, regret right decision wrong decision uh, point. Um, I think I mean the poll that you just mentioned forty four forty four. I think it's fair to describe that one as the outlier. Um, effectively, since October last year, there's been a small and pretty consistent lead for wrong decision of about three and four, three to four points. Right, um, and you know I think this one is the unusual one but but to, to be honest that hasn't moved so um you know whether whether or not there's a small lead i think what would be far more significant would be if it was opening up and there's very very little sign of that well this was a poll uh, just to interject before you go on um that had the tories seven points ahead so maybe it was a bit bit brexity but yeah, yeah go on um i think on this point of um a lot of people think it was the wrong decision sorry the right decision but going badly um, I mean, you you mentioned that question that showed um, that what oh, thirteen one three percent think that their personal financial decision will get better, twenty five percent think that it'll get worse. What's interesting is that the question on the UK economy is a much bigger gap. Twenty five percent think it'll get better, forty percent think it'll get worse. Um, so twelve point gap for um, personal and uh, fifteen point gap, uh, but far more people. Um, uh, saying that they think that it will be worse for the UK economy. Um, it, there's clearly a thing where people uh, think, oh, wow, you know, it might cause some pain, but that pain will hit other people. Uh, and there's the sort of the unpersonalizedness of it, um, the abstractness of it that is no doubt insulating people um, that's interesting. I mean, the, the other point, which again, you referred to or, or alluded to is this sort of sense that it's be, it was the right decision, but it's being done badly. I mean, that's very Dominic Cummings. Um, it's, um, it's sort of 
yeah, hell, it's very, um, it's very communist. The idea that um, <laughs> uh, um, communism is a great idea. It's just always been done badly. And I mean, as a public opinion thing, I guess it's not surprising. And that was always the case. I think yeah. when when someone who's spent their career penning 10,000 word blog posts about the incompetence of the civil service is then surprised that the civil service can't enact the biggest project since the Second World War in the space of two years. Well, it's hard to be sympathetic. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me of a socialist party. I, I, you see them on Twitter and that like, someone will say, well, this country was bad. And they'll say, well, actually, that wasn't socialism. They're not socialism, yeah, it's state it, capitalism. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating line when you have that. And I definitely think there'll be, I mean, this is what the Farage line is going to be, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, yeah, Brexit was the right idea. It's just the betrayal of the, the uh, sniveling politicians. And, and like, I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily going to go all, all Pete Tong anyway, but I mean, I think you know, life will move on. Um, but I imagine when it's not the land of milk and honey he proposed, then uh, he'll probably say, well, that's because all the people did it badly. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I think that's all we've got time for this week's uh, politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening as usual. If you like what you hear, um, please do the necessary. Uh, share us on social media, like our Facebook page, give us a positive comment or rating on one of the apps that you use uh, to get the podcast and do get in touch as well um we still love to get your suggestions on topics we should cover or guests that we should have on um you know it's always very useful to interact with people that listen to the show and uh, to understand what you like and what you don't like and all that sort of stuff so um a big thanks to leo a big thanks to you guys for listening and stay tuned for more episodes of polling matters in the coming weeks <laughs>